Hello everyone, so this is episode 49 and in this episode I am not going to cover any sort of specific subjects. I am just going to cover few one-liners which will be helpful for you guys. And I want to thank you guys so much for supporting me. You guys are giving me a great response and that absolutely motivates me to make more such audios. Although I was a little bit busy previous days so from now on I am going to at least make one audio a day so without wasting much time let's get into the audio okay so the first thing is whenever a question of retinal detachment come they will present you the three basic finding that will be the painless onset of flashing lights another will be the floaters and the last one will be eye shade downs like there will be curtain fall effect only in one eye so that all these findings are of retinal detachment Next is what is the treatment for BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. So the treatment is basically Apley's maneuver and in that we are repositioning the otolith. Next is torch palsies or torch paralysis. It is postictal hemiparesis and it takes 15 hours but less than 24 hours to simply resolve. Now let's talk about few SSRIs. So basically it is sometimes really difficult for us to understand what is this drug classified. And so yeah, fluoxamine, fluoxetine, sertraline, paroxetine, citalopram and escitalopram. So zetine, zetine, paroxetine, fluoxetine, another one is citalopram and escitalopram. Sertraline is the, I should say, the basic drug of SSRIs and another one is the fluoxamine. Next is TCA. So tricyclic antidepressant ends with pramine. So imipramine, clomipramine and uh, triptyline. So amitriptyline, nortriptyline, desipramine and doxepine. So these are drugs which are classified as TCA, tricyclic antidepressant. Next is monoamine oxidase inhibitors. These are selegiline, rasagiline and renylcyclopromine. So all these drugs. Another one is NDRI that is non-epinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor which is bupropione. Next is SNRIs which is venlafaxine and duloxetine. Although it has duloxetine in the end, but uh, you should know that uh, DULO stands for 2 and this DULO includes SNRIs both this uh, serotonin and the non-epinephrine. So this will help you remember. Next is Metazepine and Trazodone. So these are also used as an antidepressant and Metazepine side effects is it causes obesity. Now let's talk about uh, the drugs which are causing serotonin syndrome when used together. Okay. So SSRIs, SNRIs, MAO inhibitor, levodopa, mepiridine, amphetamine, lithium, cocaine, LSD, also known as XRT, ecstasy, and the St. John Ward. Yeah. So these are the drugs which can cause serotonin syndrome when used together. Okay. SSRIs, SNRIs, MAO inhibitors, levodopa, mepiridine, amphetamine, lithium, cocaine, LSD, and St. John Ward. Now let's talk about the most common cause of sensorineural hearing loss, which is uh, presbycusis. Another one is the most common cause of the conducting hearing loss. So that is otosclerosis. If there is recurrent otitis media, it can lead to hearing loss. So the next point is elderly patient presenting in an ER and he is having dilated right pupil. And during the history, she reports that she fell at home uh, five days back. So they are asking us what is the most likely diagnosis. So in that case, since there is a five day history and now she is presenting with the symptoms. So basically the diagnosis will be right sided subdural hematoma. And it's not epidural hematoma because there is history of progressive headache, okay. Although there is a lucid interval, but that time she was having headache, but that was in less amount. 
and then it progressively increase okay so what medications other than stimulants can be used for the treatment of attention deficit hyperactive disorders so that can be tcas we can also use alpha 2 agonist we can also use modafinil in alpha 2 agonist example are guaifenesin and clonidine now let's talk about the medication which are used for treatment of tourette syndrome so that is flufenazine pimazoid and tetrabenazine what is the most worrisome side effect of the aid that is atomoxetine so it can cause uh, uh, liver injury and also increase suicidal ideation so what is the definitive treatment for subdural and epidural uh, epidural hematoma so basic treatment is just we have to evacuate the hematoma with the help of a burr hole but you should remember that this is the definitive treatment you don't have to always do this but yeah definitive treatment so one must remember basic uh, findings of the bacterial meningitis although we know the basic one but there are few more point, uh, points which you should remember along with the basic points so that is you will see the bendemia you will see leukopenias in some cases and also there will be hyponatremia okay so the another point is a patient is com uh, coming to your office and he is complaining of hearing loss and uh, vertigo along with that uh, when you examine the tympanic membrane you see a pearly white mass so you should remember that this is the classic presentation of cholesteatoma so you should uh, one more point is there like you should always recognize that the it is a type 1 diabetes case because it's an autoimmune phenomena see in the question you'll see that some sort of other autoimmune disease is there or something related to antibody or few points like women of reproductive age they are more prone to diabetes uh, like autoimmune disorders so all these findings you should look carefully in the question so how you gonna diagnose if a patient is juvenile and is coming to your Uh, office and you are confused between type one and type two diabetes. So if the patient for type one diabetes, then that patient will be a little bit skinny, and in case of type two diabetes, he will be a little bit fat or obese. But still, if you are not sure, then you can simply test for anti-IL-8s antibodies. If these are positive, then simply it's diabetes type type one. So basically, there are few antibodies which you you should know, but it's not that higher. First is the NC anti-insulin antibody, another one is the anti-islet cytoplasmic antibody, anti-glutamic acid decarboxylase antibody, and anti-tyrosine phosphatase antibody. So type one diabetes is basically associated with HLA-DR3, DR4, and uh, DQ. So one more fact is that that rubella, mumps, and the uh, coxsackie virus. are uh, causing or or forming this antibodies which can lead to diabetes type 1 so there is a association between these infections and diabetes type 1 one more thing which is really really important is that whenever and uh, he is having sign of uh, nausea vomiting but he is not having diarrhea so basically this is not a case of gastroenteritis he is having gastric symptoms but not the enteritis symptoms because he is not having diarrhea so this is a red flag sign for the type 1 diabetes mellitus you should rule out that first back to uh, diabetic ketoacidosis although we are all aware, aware about the fact that ketones can be seen in the urine of a diabetic ketoacidosis patient but you can see ketone in uh, fasting state and also if someone is not taking a carb diet then also always remember whenever there is a case of thyroid nodule so first thing which you are supposed to do is tsh and ultrasound and this tsh help in determining whether the nodule is hyperthyroid or euthyroid okay and hyperthyroid nodules are not malignant and uh, euthyroid or hypothyroid nodules can be malignant 
an ultrasound gives you a visual image like whether it is cystic, multiloculated, because if it is loculated, cysting, it could be a sign of cancer. And also the size of the nodule is determined with the help of ultrasound only, which can also help us determine whether it is a, a nodular, like a malignant one or a benign condition. So basically, if a person has a hypothyroid nodule, then the next step which you are supposed to do is the radioactive iodine uptake studies. Okay. And this will basically help us to understand whether it is diffuse or uh, only one nodule is there or there are so many nodules. So multinodular goiter also. So it will differentiate between them. So if it is diffuse, then it is Graves' disease. If there is only one nodule, then it can be nodular like thyroid adenoma. And if there are so many nodules, then it can be multinodular or toxic goiter. Okay. And you know what, this multinodular toxic goiter is no, also known as plumber disease. So if someone asks you about plumber disease, this is the same as MNN. So if the patient is used thyroid, then what next are you supposed to do? Then you'll see whether the nodule is greater than a centimeter or less than a centimeter, okay? And if it's greater than a centimeter, then you simply have to biopsy it. And if it is less than a centimeter, then you wait and follow up for a few weeks. And one more point which you should notice, sometimes the patient can be hypothyroid, but they will have zero iodine, radioactive iodine uptake. So what is happening in that condition? So this radioactive iodine uptake is basically the uh, estimate of how much thyroid hormone is actually being made. So if there is an ectopic condition, then also the radioactive iodine uptake will be there, but not in the thyroid. Okay. And also what you should think at this condition, whenever the radioactive iodine uptake is not there, and still there is a hypothyroid condition so you have to think that the gland has either busted or it is inflamed so that all the stored thyroid hormone is relieved at once only so the basic example of these are this condition is postpartum thyroiditis and decubitant disease and this is also known as the subacute uh, thyroiditis okay you can also think about the hashimoto thyroiditis because in that Earlier phase is the hypothyroid phase only and later on it leads to hypothyroid, hypothyroid condition. Okay, another fact is whenever there is an estrogen excess state, like either someone is taking any sort of medications or body is only generating the estrogen, that time it also increases the thyroid binding globulin. And the excess thyroid binding globulin, what, uh, what it does is it attaches the uh, surrounding thyroid hormone and if a body is normal, like a person is normal and is not having uh, any sort of disease, thyroid disease, then they will produce more thyroid. Okay. But this is not the case when the people is, uh, when the people are hypothyroid because they already have very less thyroid. Okay. So the basic point from this uh, explanation is that when other people are uh, using OCP or are pregnant, that time and also along with that they have hypothyroid condition so we have to increase the dose of levothyroxine doses which we are using for their hypothyroid but if they are pregnant and using ocps that time we have to increase the dose simply to keep up with the increased tbg okay okay now let's talk about hashimoto thyroiditis which is also known as chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis and you know what this is an autoimmune condition so therefore this will be associated with other autoimmune conditions such as sle pernicious anemia or Jogren's syndrome and the key point here is that this Hashimoto thyroiditis is also associated with thyroid lymphoma okay if a patient is hypothyroid and he has a pain for thyroid so what are the condition it is subacute thyroiditis that is the QAN1 and these patients may present uh, with the tender thyroid immediately after upper respiratory tract infection so you can find that point also in the history 
and remember that this uh, is an inflammatory conditions where the thyroid is leaking and it is therefore leading to the hypothyroid although uh, the radioactive iodine uptake will be zero it is treated with NSAID and aspirin first now let's talk about the medullary thyroid cancer which is arising from the parafollicular c-cells and this c-cell secretes the calcitonin which brings the calcium level back normal like it brings calcium level down okay so basically the medullary thyroid cancer is treated with surgery but before you treat it or you do the surgery you perform the surgery before that you have to think because it is a part of MEN2A syndrome so you have to rule out other tumors also associated with the MEN2A not only MEN2A along with the MEN2A MEN2B disease you would also be ruled because uh, this medullary thyroid cancer is a part of MEN2B also A is pheochromocytoma hyperparathyroidism and medullary thyroid cancer and meant to be is a pheochromocytoma, medullary thyroid cancers and mucosal neuromas. And in meant to be, it is also associated with Marfanoid habitus. So you will see the features of Marfan syndrome. And since uh, this medullary thyroid cancer is associated with meant to a and meant to b therefore the best next step after ruling out the medullary thyroid cancer is to rule out the other cancers. Okay, not the treatment. And the most important one which you are supposed to check for it is pheochromocytoma. And how are you going to rule that out? By doing the urinary metanephrine test, okay? And why are you supposed to uh, rule out that first? Because while doing, while performing a surgery for the medullary thyroid cancer, if the person was having the pheochromocytoma, there can be an hypertensive episode which can bleed excessively and the patient can die. Okay, now let's talk about acromegaly, which is caused by excess growth hormone from the pituitary gland. And the first next step in the management of this would be to estimate the insulin-like growth factor 1 first. Okay, we don't have to do the growth hormone level first because we have to do the insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1. And you should remember that this is released by the liver and it is basically stimulated by the growth hormone. So if growth hormone is there, then only then IGF-1 will be there. Okay, now syndrome of inappropriate ADH, the first line treatment is water restriction. So how are you going to diagnose a patient of Cushing syndrome? So he'll have buffalo hump, amenorrhea, moon feces, okay, and uh, skin ulcerations, changes in the hypertension. Uh, what I want to say, skin changes and hypertension. Also, necrosis of the femoral head can be there. Even glaucoma can be there. Osteoporosis, immunosuppression, and diabetes can also be seen with Cushing white feces or Cushing syndrome. So the first, and, uh, first test to rule out the Cushing syndrome is overnight low-dose dexamethasone test. Or you can also go for 24-hour uh, cortisol levels or late-night salivary cortisol level. Now, for adrenal insufficiency, the first test will be urinary cortisol or ACTH stimulation. Now, remember, if ACT, giving ACTH stimulates the release of the adrenal level, then you have to think it is secondary, okay? Because on giving ACTH, then the ACT, if uh, the adrenal level are not raising, then it's not the secondary, it is primary. And if it's a primary adrenal insufficiency, that's called as Edison's disease. And what is the most common cause of uh, Edison's disease? That is the primary adrenal insufficiency. It is autoimmune condition again. So it will be associated with autoimmune disorders. Now, what if a patient has hypertension along with hypernatremia and hypokalemia? So in such conditions, the first step which we are supposed to do is renin to aldosterone ratio. And you are measuring this because uh, this is simply hyperaldosteronism conditions so you have to think whether it is an adrenal gland problem or there is low perfusion to the kidney which is causing this hyperlandrosterone 
the two basic uh, renal problems which can lead to the hyperaldosteronism are the renal artery stenosis and fibromuscular dysplasia but this renal artery stenosis is because of the atherosclerosis mainly seen in an elderly individual but the fibromuscular dysplasia can be seen in reproductive age women so now if aldosterone was high and renin was low that means it is an adrenal problem that uh, adrenal gland is directly secreting aldosterone and for compensation of that this aldosterone is giving negative feedback to renin and therefore the renin is low and this type of condition is called as Kohn's syndrome that is primary hyperaldosteronism but now if renin is high and this is causing the aldosterone to be high then it is the renal artery stenosis or fibromuscular dysplasia okay now let me explain you how the ras system works so basically whenever there is low perfusion to the kidney the JG cells are activated, they release the renin and this renin when uh, con uh, re releases, uh, activates the angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1 then this angiotensin 1 is converted to angiotensin 2 with the help of ACE okay, and angiotensin converting enzyme then this angiotensin 2 goes to the principal cells in the kidney okay, like the nephrons and uh, in the nephron it is basically angiotensin is uh, simply the angiotensin 2 is simply the steroid hormone so it enters the principal cells and it activates the transcription and therefore and uh, therefore the ENAC channels are increased on the principal cell the level of the ENAC channels are now raised and this ENAC channel is responsible for sodium uh, reabsorption and potassium excretion so therefore it is leading to hypokalemia and sodium uh, reabsorption is there which is de uh, which leads to hypernatremia along with sodium water is also absorbed and all this process ultimately ends up in hypertension one more point that this fibromuscular dysplasia is also associated with suborricular bluey okay that is behind the ears now how are you going to diagnose the diabetes mellitus so it is basically diagnosed in three ways either you can uh, take two reading of the fasting glucose okay and both of these readings are if greater than 126 also random glucose uh, level of uh, more than 200 with symptoms of polyuria polyphagia polydipsia dehydration weight loss can also be the symptoms and the third one is the hemoglobin a1c of 6.5 plus and you have to remember that the metformin was contraindicated in congestive heart failure and the kidney failure because it can exacerbate the lactic acidosis so how are you gonna diagnose the renal failure and like so that time you see the creatinine level if it is greater than 1.5 then metformin is contraindicated in such condition so sometimes the people like to ask like what is the effect of metformin so there are basically three effects first is it enhances the insulin sensitivity another one is it blocks the gluconeogenesis and the last one is it decreases the gi absorption of glucose and it is the first line treatment for type 2 diabetes mellitus and the most common cause of death in diabetic patient is uh, myocardial infarction because of the accelerated atherosclerosis. And uh, another point is uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, again myocardial infarction is the most common cause of death. And the mechanism is also same, like they are also enhancing the atherosclerosis. Now let's talk about the difference between HSS, that is hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state and diabetic ketoacidosis. And the main key factor in differentiation is the pH. So the person with DK will have an anion gap metabolic acidosis and the person with the HHS will not have this metabolic acidosis. And glucose level difference is also one 
point which can be used for differentiation because in HSS the glucose level raises so high that is approximately 1000 and a person with DKA will have a glucose level of around 300 to 500. So I told you about the DK that you will have an anion gap metabolic acidosis so pH will be less than 7.35. Now how are you going to calculate the anion gap? You will subtract uh, sodium from the sum of the bicarbonate and the chloride. So the difference if uh, it's uh, greater than 8 to 16 or 8 to 12 the resources says it differently. So if such difference is there then you can think that it is an anion gap. This uh, DK basically have uh, insulin deficiency and for the treatment we have to give them insulin. They will have abdominal pain, they will have vomiting, nausea. Also they will have respiratory alkalosis to compensate the metabolic acidosis. And this respiratory alkalosis compensation is known as cosmal breathing. So how you define cosmal breathing? It is deep tachypnea with the giant tidal volume. Okay, like tidal volume is increased and there is tachypnea, like breathing rate is also increased. So the treatment of DK is uh, continuous uh, fluid and flu uh, continuous insulin infusion and IV fluids. Along with that, you have to give them potassium. And uh, uh, when are you supposed to give them potassium? When the level of potassium falls less than 5.2, okay? Okay, so if someone asks you like, when are you going to stop giving the insulin? So the answer should be when the anion gap is closed, like there is no anion gap. And the treat hyperosmotic hyperglycemic uh, uh, so in that also the treatment is same like IV fluids and insulin. So now let's talk about Zollinger Ellison syndrome which is a gastrin secreting tumor in that in such type of questions you will see multiple duodenal ulcers. Along with that diarrhea will also be there and for the diagnosis you have to measure the gastrin level. That should be more than 1000. For the confirmation you'll do the secretin challenge test. And uh, secretin usually lowers the gastrin, but in case of gastrin uh, Zollinger Ellison syndrome, there is excessive gastrin, so secretin won't be able to lower the gastrin that time. And how are you going to treat the Zollinger Ellison syndrome? For that, you have to use the proton pump inhibitor and do the surgery. Now, the last point is uh, glucagonoma. So, uh, the key here is uh, hyperglycemia. Along with that, there will be a classic, uh, classic rash, which is known as necrotizing migratory erythema. And it's just a random point. What are you supposed to give a patient with beta blocker overdose? So the treatment is glucagon only. So this is it for this lecture. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, thank you so much for supporting. Have a nice day.